Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This weekend, take a journey on the A-Train. The solo comedy opens tonight at the Heartbeat Ensemble in Hartford, and it's written and performed by Annie Torsilieri. In the play, she takes the audience on her journey, coming to terms with her son's autism diagnosis. I'll talk with Annie about A-Train coming up. First, did you grow up in a rural town? The U.S. Census says about one in five Americans live in rural communities. Where We Live has been traveling around the state during our Coffee Break series to learn more about the places outside our cities. What characteristics do Connecticut's rural towns share? There are 68 of them in our state. We're going to hear more about them, including the challenges they face. That's later. First, to learn about rural America more broadly, joining us by phone is Katrina Badger. She's program officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is headquartered in Princeton, New Jersey. Katrina, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I understand the foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, did a survey in collaboration with NPR and Harvard School of Public Health uh, to look at rural America. What prompted this? Indeed, we did. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is working to build a culture of health in America where the opportunity to be healthy is really our top priority. And we know we'll never reach that goal until everyone, no matter where you live, has the opportunity to live the healthiest life possible. So as part of that, we know that for one in five people, as you mentioned, uh, in America, live in rural America and choosing to live uh, in rural communities shouldn't present barriers to living a healthy life. But so often it does. So we just chose to take on this poll really to understand how people are living, how people who are living in rural places um, in America are thinking about and experiencing opportunities for economic advancement and for health. So the poll findings really provide important information on the diverse experiences of people living in rural places that's critical to informing both our own work and and others' efforts across the country to improve health and well-being uh, in rural places. We hope that the findings will be informative to local leaders and community members, as well as public health officials and policymakers, uh, to understand the experiences and priorities of people living in rural places and inform decisions to improve local health and well-being. Uh, Katrina, so you reached uh, people around the country by phone. How did you reach out to Americans and to find out if they do live in a rural community, and what were the questions you asked them? Sure. Um, So we used a definition uh, of rural. There are many different definitions, but we chose to use the metropolitan statistical area definition. Um, So we define rural as anything not part of a metropolitan statistical area, which really is something that uses the U.S. Census Bureau data to identify core areas with substantial population nucleus. Um, And so then in partnership with NPR and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, this uh, telephone survey, both using landline and cell phone, was conducted um, between June and August of last year, um, reaching a representative sample of adults across rural America, really representing the diversity of rural rural people and, and places. 
Um, and the questions we asked are really to get to the heart of understanding the needs and, and issues that people see in their lives and the opportunities and, um, and strengths that they see in rural communities and why they choose to live uh, in rural places themselves. So it was really anchored around understanding particularly aspects of life related to economic opportunity and health. Uh, Katrina, you've mentioned a couple times now that these communities are diverse. Uh, that uh, can be something that might surprise uh, people uh, when you think about the narrative of rural America. Tell us more about um, the demographics of these places. Sure. Um, and maybe first, I'll just call to mind a few places that might kind of paint a broader picture than, you know, so many people, I think, some can sometimes think about rural as, as being a poor white town. But actually, if we think about, for example, the U.S.-Mexico border and in unincorporated areas um, called colonias there, um, a lot of Latino communities, a lot of Native communities, it, even if we think about the Northwest and tribal lands um, or maybe the Southeast area, the Mississippi Delta and, and other kind of southern uh, rural places, as well as central Appalachia and, and Appalachian communities that, that do represent large um, numbers of, of white uh, families and people. But the survey really represented um, a representative sample of, of uh, the rural population across the country. We did half male, half female. About a quarter of respondents were 65 or older. Um, half reported having a high school education or less, and 20% had a college or postgraduate education. Um, politically, I would say most respondents identified as independent, and then uh, Republican, 31%, and 25% were Democrat. There were a number of LGBTQ respondents, 4% of them. Uh, almost half were married. And as far as race and ethnicity, there were 78% identified as white, non-Hispanic, with a vast majority uh, born in the U.S. But we did have respondents that were African-American, Asian-American, Pacific Islander, Native American, and Latino. Uh, Katrina Katrina Badger is our guest uh, here on Where We Live. She's program officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, the foundation, along with National Public Radio and Harvard's Public Health, School of Public Health, uh, uh, looked into life in rural America uh, to uh, survey uh, people from diverse backgrounds about uh, their communities and what is top of mind for them about issues that they see uh, in their communities. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about Connecticut specifically, but Katrina, tell me, so what did you learn from the survey? What were the issues that, um, that rural Americans are most concerned about or see where they live? Yeah, so I think um, I'll start by just saying the findings made really clear that there, as you were just at mentioning, that there's no singular rural America, right? There's no single rural mindset. There is this diversity of experience and perspective uh, that sometimes the national narrative uh, forgets. While the survey finds that rural Americans identify drug addiction and economic concerns as the two biggest problems through this poll, um, it also showed us that people in rural places share a strong sense of community. They're optimistic about new job opportunities, but also very realistic about education and new job training uh, that will be required for that. So. Over half of residents agree that opioid addiction is a serious problem in their communities, and 
about half of them personally know someone who's struggling with the opioid uh, addiction. And over half of respondents indicated several areas um, of priority that would be most helpful for their local economy in terms of long-term job creation, improving quality local schools, improving access to health care, and advancing job training and skills uh, were the priorities that they really focused on. They also said that over half responded in saying that they were active in solving problems in their own community. Um, and 81% reported feeling attached to their local community and lifted up the strong sense of community as a real strength in rural places. When we think about economic development, uh, when the people were being surveyed, uh, broadly speaking, do they feel like they're stuck and um, do they feel like their local governments are responding uh, to their concerns about uh, trying to find employment or other opportunities, Katrina? So people actually generally feel like their lives are turning out as expected, if not better, and people are responded as feeling very hopeful uh, for improvement and have seen improvement, but they also see a strong role for uh, for government to play, local, state, and national government to play in helping to advance uh, those opportunities into the future. I see uh, in the report uh, an, a trend or concern was uh, the premature death rate. Is that tied to the opioid abuse epidemic, or are there other, uh, in other factors in play there, Katrina? There are so many factors uh, that that in play that that really help uh, drive the those rates. Um, we know from research that those factors that we talk about as upstream social determinants of health uh, really lead to better social and economic opportunity in the long term. So things like housing and transportation, access to good quality education and jobs are really critical drivers for those health, um, health outcomes in the longer term. And now that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, has uh, done this report again and gotten this information, what's next? Um, so we actually, this is just one part of, you know, many things that we're doing to, to enhance understanding across the country of both needs and opportunities to improve health and well-being in rural places. We have a second part to this poll, actually, that's out in the field right now because we had more questions. Um, and that will be, the findings from that second piece will come out in May. We are also working to deepen our networks and support networks for leadership and, and local change across the country, working with folks like the Extension Services and 4-H, as well as the Center for Rural Strategies. We are partnering with Brandeis University and Pew to uh, really build the evidence related to the social determinants of health, those, those upstream factors, and the opioid crisis. Um, and then we're doing a lot of work to support community and economic development in rural places in partnership with institutions like the Aspen Institute, Community Strategies Group, and the Persistent Poverty Working Group, um, folks working on regional community development and um, uh, leadership strengthening in those places. And those are just a few examples. Well, maybe I'll just mention one more, the Center for Optimizing Rural Health, which is working to counteract the um, healthcare access crisis, particularly with ro ho rural hospital closures. But folks can find out more about our current activities and, and other resources at rwjf.org forward slash rural health. 
Katrina Badger, Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, thank you for joining us today on Where We Live. Thank you. Uh, I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. Again, Where We Live is a uh, episode and program from Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, we're learning about this uh, more broad report looking at life in rural America. But after the break, we're going to learn more about Connecticut's rural towns. And we want to hear from you. Do you live in a rural community? What issues are most important to your town? And are they being addressed? You can join us. The number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's often criticized for the decisions that helped foster 168 towns and cities. And depending on what corner you're in, you know the characteristics of a particular town can vary greatly from one region to the next. What needs do Connecticut's rural communities have and who's addressing them? For more on this, joining me in studio is Diane Manning. She's president and CEO of United Services LLC. It's a nonprofit based in northeastern Connecticut. Diane, welcome to our show. Good morning. And I want to tell our listeners, if they also live in a rural town in Connecticut, we want to hear from you as well. The number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Diane, I mentioned that you are a nonprofit based in northeastern Connecticut. So tell us a little bit about United Services. Uh, you know, who do you serve? United Services is the community behavioral health provider for adults, children, and families in northeastern Connecticut. That means that we provide mental health and substance abuse treatment and community supports, including in-home supports for adults and families. We also are the domestic violence provider, so we provide court-based services and shelter and community services for victims of domestic violence and child abuse. We're a, a trauma-focused agency. And we also have a center for autism, so a pretty wide range of community-based services and outpatient clinical services. I mentioned that you're in northeastern Connecticut, so the, the quiet corner. Are there mm -hmm. other nonprofits such as yours that are serving uh, the different regions that we have here in Connecticut, these more rural towns? There are, um, there are providers in each area of the state. Local mental health authorities are designated by the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services to provide services in each part of the state. So we serve the 21 towns in the northeast. Uh, when we think about rural, again, uh, what does that mean exactly in, in the definition of, of what uh, towns and people are, are able to get your services, Diane? Well, anyone in our area is eligible for our services on that outpatient basis. And so we do serve a very wide variety of, from individuals who have severe and prolonged mental illnesses and acute to acute psychiatric disorders, to children who have experienced trauma and adults who have experienced trauma. Uh, we provide a lot of services to our small local businesses through both our employee assistance programs and just providing services for their employees as they need help in their daily lives. When we think about uh, census data, are these towns that have 10,000 residents or less? Or what is, what is a, rural in Connecticut? <laughs> we have a couple of towns that have uh, between 12 and 15,000 residents, and we have one that has 839. <laughs> so it's quite a wide range. 
Uh, we were uh, listening to uh, Katrina from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation when they surveyed uh, rural America, and she said that it's not a monolith. Uh, these communities are very diverse. So uh, talk about um, the specific people who are living in the towns that you mm-hmm. serve. Uh, so not necessarily all elderly or particular particular race? Uh, they're not a particular race, although we do have predominantly um, Caucasian uh, individuals just based on where we are. Um, However, we do have um, the University of Connecticut and Eastern Connecticut State University who are also located in our towns, and so they bring uh, a lot of younger people into the area. Our average age is older than the statewide average. Um, Our education level is lower than the statewide average if you take out those university students and the faculty that work there. Um, And we do have a significant proportion of Latino and um, uh, individuals, particularly in the Willimantic area and in the Plainfield area that we work with. And we're seeing increasing numbers of Asian uh, immigrants coming into our area as well. Uh, you serve northeastern Connecticut. Are you from uh, the Quiet Corner, born and raised? I'm born and raised in Griswold, which is just south of the Quiet Corner. <laughs> uh, the reason I was curious is uh, you know, this report uh, by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, talked about uh, when people end up uh, moving away, maybe for looking for mm-hmm. economic opportunity, they're not often likely to come back. Is that is that similar to what we see in Connecticut? It's very similar. Um, We do see that uh, our young people that go away for college frequently don't return because we don't have the industries that are supported by individuals with with college degrees. Um, We do have a lot of small businesses, uh, family-run businesses, businesses with 120, 150 employees that are small manufacturers. Uh, Many of them are defense contractors, and they provide parts that are used by either uh, Sikorsky or General Dynamics or, or the various defense contractors. Um, our single largest employer, frankly, is the state of Connecticut. Mm. Uh, when we think about uh, some of the issues that are important to uh, residents who live in rural towns, are they similar to what we're hearing from uh, the national survey? Uh, worry, uh, concerns about addiction to opioids and alcohol, um, economic uh, opportunity. What are some of the, the the big the big issues? The the responses to the opioid. Um crisis that we've seen in the last several years indicates that we have an opioid crisis at least as uh, significant as that in the inner cities. And where we are seeing the opioid issues is actually in a slightly older population who have been treated with pain medications and who have become addicted. And um, we don't have the same types of services available for treatment, and it's much easier, frankly, to hide in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. When we think about uh, rural communities uh, maybe not being very close to a major hospital, mm-hmm. uh, so can you talk how um, key are these federally qualified health centers in these corners of Connecticut? Mm-hmm. The federally qualified health centers provide primary care, uh, primary access to behavioral health care for screening um, and dental care. However, if you need a specialist and you're in northeastern Connecticut, it's likely that you will have to travel for specialty care. It's reflected in the fact that Wyndham County has the highest incidence of cancer deaths in the state. Um, and many of the, and also when you look at some of the other indicators, uh, it's lung cancer. It's things that, that people get treated very late for, and part of that is just access to health care. We have the primary care, 
but getting to a specialist and following up on care is difficult. So transportation uh, options are a challenge Mm -hmm. for uh, residents who live in rural towns. Transportation is a major issue. Um, Many of our little villages are connected by a route bus, but if you don't actually live on the bus route, um, and it's very limited, the, the operating hours are limited, the route is limited, you just can't get from here to there a lot of the time on public transportation. I'm thinking that some of the things that we're talking about are not new, and I'm just curious, has there been movement uh, by policymakers, whether it's a a first selectman or Mm -hmm. a representative in the General Assembly, to address uh, these issues like transportation? There are several bills before the General Assembly that have been submitted by um, members of the delegation that cover northeastern Connecticut. And yesterday, actually, United Services was part of Forgotten Corner Day. So we've changed the quiet corner to the forgotten corner in our advocacy efforts to really look at how we can start to have parity with access to some of the services in northeastern Connecticut as compared to other parts of the state. And that is being led by members of our delegation. Yesterday was sponsored by Representative Kevin Ryan, who's the chair of the Rural Caucus. Um, And we're really trying to talk about how we need to have not necessarily exactly the same things, but things that make sense for our area. Um, And transportation is one of those issues, access to the same kinds of behavioral health and substance abuse treatment that's available in other parts of the state. Interestingly, in northeastern Connecticut, we're used to working together, lots of little villages making a bigger village and a bigger community. And so when we had Forgotten Corner Day, you would find our treatment providers, our FQHC, um, our educational providers were represented there, so the school systems were represented, but also the Chamber of Commerce is part of that because they're very concerned about their small businesses and the types of services that those employees need. And so they're all, again, in support of having these services come into the area. Uh, When we visited Pomfret, we heard um, from the select women there, um, and she was saying that uh, even with a push for regionalization, a lot of these small towns are already sharing services because they need to do that in order to adequately try to address uh, some of the, the issues that their residents are facing. Exactly. We have a very robust council of governments, and they coordinate the the transportation, the public transportation issues. They also provide things like the the, um, animal shelter, because you can't have 15 or 20 different animal shelters in the area and adequately support them. Uh, They also provide some planning services. They work on uh, real estate assessment and purchase of software, et cetera. Um, And the providers actually work together very closely to provide services. Our school systems share high schools. Uh, We were talking about, again, uh, access to behavioral health services, uh, uh, more transportation options for residents who live in rural communities. But what about uh, Internet bandwidth, uh, even phone service uh, in parts of Connecticut? I know that's a bill that's being introduced to try to get high-speed broadband to these corners. It it is difficult. We have our staff uh, carry uh, laptops and um, have the ability to connect to the Internet. Um, But sometimes they can't actually get a phone connection to do a hotspot. In many of our areas, they're just kind of off the grid. And that creates um, issues for safety. It also creates issues for individuals being able to work from home, for instance.
Uh, Diane Manning is with us in studio, president and CEO of United Services LLC. It's a nonprofit based in the quiet corner, uh, northeastern Connecticut, as we look at uh, the rural towns in our state and some of the issues that residents are facing and what's being done to address them. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Teresa's calling from Shelton. Teresa, go ahead. Yes, hello. First of all, I want to thank Diane uh, for being here and advocating for the small towns. I, I believe uh, grassroots is, is key. And um, my what I wanted to bring up today was I grew up in rural Nebraska. I, I live in Connecticut for the last decade. But um, in the 80s, when I was in high school, you could go, you could graduate from high school and get a better paying job than your teacher with benefits and everything. And, and it was because there were a large meatpacking industry. So I've seen farmers be uh, devastated through the next few decades because of large corporate ConAgra, Cargill. They come in and the mom and pop farmer cannot compete with um, large corporate industry and they uh, buy out the farmers. My best friend married a farmer and her children did not go into farming. Uh, there will not be a future after five, six generations because they it's just not affordable. Um, and uh, that's a. I was wondering if anybody was talking about or addressing the issue of large corporations devastating rural farmers, and that's a, a very key element. Uh, and also, uh, like for example, in the Panhandle of Nebraska, Ted Turner owns most of the Panhandle. So large, you know, there's this devastation, and then a buy-up by large corporations. So, I, and I believe that is a major factor in poverty. And um, I'm wondering how that affects the, the large corporate industry has impoverished, um, you know, rural Connecticut as well. Good question, yeah. Teresa. Thank you for the call. I know that extension offices play a key role in providing support to these local farms, many of them found in rural towns, Diane. A number of the farms in our area have, again, gotten together to be part of the farmer's cow. So they have joined together to create um, a little bit more synergy among their their uh, businesses, and they have uh, expanded into providing artisan cheeses and really looked at doing some value added to those small farms. But we are seeing small farms that are closing because the family members are are just not interested in that lifestyle any longer. Um, And Connecticut farming is much smaller than Nebraska farming. That's for sure. (laughs) So, uh, but we have actually seen um, also a lot of uh, organic farms that have sprung up in our area and some specialization so that they're able to actually do some of the farm-to-table restaurants uh, and support some of that. So I think they're they're thinking a little bit differently about how they operate, um, but they seem to be, it seems to also be a lifestyle that people are choosing as well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting for the farms that have closed, what's happening to that farmland? Because there is that, um, you know, uh, push in Connecticut to preserve farmland, but you're also talking about uh, specific areas of the state that may not see a lot of economic development. Is there a tension there? I think there is. There, some of them have gone into some of the land conservancies so that the land is not going to be developed into uh, housing or some major industrial uses. But we're also seeing some of the farms that have been transferred. Uh, we have now a, a new um, apple farm that is being turned into a, a brew uh, brewing oh, is this area. a tree house that yes, uh, purchased an yes. old apple farm making the cider? Old, yeah. Yes, making cider. And so, again, um, it's transferring from something that we were used to, but it is also something that's meeting a need and it is helping to support the 
uh, the tourism that also comes into northeastern Connecticut. If you live in one of Connecticut's rural towns, we want to hear from you. Uh, what issues uh, stand out in your mind of where you live? Also, uh, why do you uh, like living uh, where you do? You can give us a call at 860-275-7266. Uh, Justin's calling from stores. Justin, go ahead. Yes, uh, I was just kind of curious. I had two things uh, that I kind of wanted to mention first. I'm curious of the role religion plays in uh, local communities. Uh, such as a rural, uh, but also I'm from the Delta of Mississippi, so I find it very interesting that several people have used the word chose to live in rural communities. Fortunately, I didn't choose to grow up poor, so I, I find it very interesting of what folks think about like the dynamics of where you have to live versus where you have opportunity. Of course, now living in Connecticut, I now have the opportunity to do that after getting a college education, but just something I thought that's very interesting to mention. That is an excellent point, Justin. Thank you. Uh, so let's take the second one about the idea of, of choosing to live in uh, rural Connecticut. We are finding that there are people who are choosing to live in rural Connecticut because it is um, slightly less stressful if you can afford that transportation. Um, but it also is an area that um, is slightly healthier. Um, I think it's a, it's a lifestyle choice. If you can find a way to, to have a job or to, uh, for individuals, we're finding people that have uh, internet businesses that can actually figure out where they've got connectivity, but also uh, writers and people who are working in the arts find Northeastern Connecticut um, a place that they like to work and live. When we think about uh, younger residents moving into uh, rural communities in Connecticut, what's bringing them? Is it the interest in farming? Uh, interest in? I'm just curious what you've seen in well, the quiet corner. Um, we haven't seen that much of the young people coming in. That's of, of concern to us. It's very difficult for us to find uh, to find staff, um, young people who are are interested in working in human services as case managers, as clinicians, etc. Um, there isn't a whole lot of nightlife, and there's uh, we're we're not that far from Providence or Worcester or Hartford or New Haven, um, but it's far enough so you don't go out in the evening, and so it does it present some um, issues for us when when we're looking at hiring. And a lot of people that leave to go to school don't return. So it's interesting Justin came to go to school. Uh, Justin, Justin was also curious about the role of religion and what, um, how that uh, religion plays in, in rural towns. Um, you know, how do you see faith-based organizations or even churches, um, do they play a central role? They do. Um, we actually find that the churches are actually very vibrant parts of our communities. They have a tendency to be supportive of the other uh, organizations in the area. They provide a sense of community, a sense of that socialization that you might find uh, going to uh, going out to dinner somewhere else. You might be going to a spaghetti dinner that's a fundraiser at a church, but it's still a way to get together with other people and meet them. So they're part. Of, they're very much part of the fabric of the communities. When we were thinking about the show, we saw that there are about 68 towns in Connecticut that um, qualify for this definition of, of being rural. So if you live in one of them, we'd like to hear from you, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Diane, we're curious how uh, rural Connecticut, uh, when we think about the issues that we've already talked about, uh, transportation, uh, the opioid epidemic, even access to uh, Internet, um, uh, you know, is, how does that compare Connecticut's towns compared to other places in New England? Well, I guess if you live in um, upstate Vermont, you don't think that 
Eastern Connecticut is uh, is rural, so I guess it's it's all comparative. Um, but I would say that um, we have figured out some different ways of dealing with uh, the transportation issues, the economics, the jobs. Um, we are pretty creative group of people. And one of the things that we find is these communities, the smaller communities, the larger communities as they get together, do work together um, fairly well. And um, so, but we do have some other things that we find that we have to deal with. Our first responders are for the most part volunteers, volunteer firemen, volunteer ambulance folks. Um, so they're doing that on top of going to work and, and managing their families, et cetera. Um, that makes for a different sense of community when there's some crisis that happens, but it also takes a toll on people. Uh, your area is also very close to the Rhode Island border. Do you see Rhode Island residents coming and, and accessing your services or wanting help? We do get people from Rhode Island and some from southern Massachusetts that will come in for uh, for services. Um, the, the state line is kind of, um, it's there, but people don't worry about that when you're three miles closer. And so, again, the natural communities have a tendency to permeate those state boundaries. You mentioned earlier uh, at the at the Hartford Legislative Office building, the Forgotten Corner Day yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, lobbying uh, for uh, state lawmakers to pay more attention uh, to areas like uh, northeastern Connecticut. Do you feel like there is more attention being paid now, or is it does it kind of have cyclical depending on who your representatives are? I think that we have been very deliberately raising the issue over the last year from the community, the community providers, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the faith-based communities. We've all been out there talking about the fact that this can't continue and that we are facing an opioid crisis, again, is at least as serious as what is in the, uh, the central cities um, without the resources to deal with it. We're looking at mental health issues and substance abuse issues domestic violence issues, child abuse issues. Domestic violence and child abuse incidents are higher in northeastern Connecticut than they are in the inner cities, but we don't have the same resources to respond to them. And so we need to change that. We've been forgotten. When we talk about health care parity, that includes health care parity based on your zip code and not just on your insurance coverage. So uh, when we think about how the state can help rural communities uh, better, are there particular agencies that can be allocating these resources, like DEMAS, for mm -hmm, instance? Mm -hmm. The DEMAS funding in northeastern Connecticut is one-sixth of the funding that it is in other parts of the state. That's historical. Um, it is based on the fact that, that 25 years ago, mental health services, for the most part, were based in state hospitals that no longer exist. But those resources, when the state hospitals closed, did not leave the areas where the state hospitals were. And so 25 years later, there's a whole additional generation and a half of individuals who have developed mental health issues, but the services to serve them have not been developed. And so there needs to be a push, and I think it's going to have to come from the legislature and the governor's office to look at that disparity and to make some changes. Well, uh, again, we thank you, Diane Manning, for uh, telling us more about the rural communities here in the state of Connecticut. We hope to have you back as we find out more about um, what's being done to address, as you mentioned, uh, health care parity and uh, the opioid em epidemic found throughout Connecticut and not just in specific regions. Diane Manning is president and CEO of United Services LLC, a nonprofit based in the Quiet Corner, northeastern Connecticut. Diane, thanks so much for coming by. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this. From Connecticut. 
Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, autism impacts many families. One mother is sharing her experience on stage in a solo comedy. We'll introduce you to Annie Torsilieri and learn about her play, A-Train. That's just ahead. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This weekend, you can take a journey on the A-Train. The solo comedy opens tonight in Hartford at Heartbeat Ensemble. A-Train is written and performed by Annie Torsilieri. In the play, she takes the audience on her journey, coming to terms with her son's autism diagnosis. I'm happy to say Annie's joining us here in studio with us on Where We Live. Annie Torsilieri, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to meet you. So you're a writer and performer of A-Train. I do it all. <laughs> <laughs> we like people that hold mul- that wear multiple hats. <laughs> yes. uh, I was reading on your website when you um, wrote this play, uh, you said you'd like A-Train to do for autism what the vagina monologues has done for vaginas. That's right. That catches people's attention. Hopefully, yeah. So tell us a little bit about, this is a personal story of, of your journey when you learned one of your children um, was diagnosed with autism, but why put it on stage? What prompted you? Well, great question. I'm an actor by uh, trade and by heart, and I'm a great believer in the power of theater. So there you go. Um, I find we can translate the human experience to the audience through seeing a live performance. I mean, of course, movies and TV are great in their own right, not putting them down. (laughs) And someday maybe A-Train will be on one of those forums. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, the stage is, uh, it's one of those things. It's live. It's in the moment. There's this human being in front of you experiencing something. And hopefully you as the audience are able to go along on that journey and actually really understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. So that's part of it. And of course, you know, as an actor, I want to translate what I know best to the stage. And this is what I am living 24-7. Mm-hmm. So it seemed a natural fit. The other thing is, is I want to make a difference, hopefully, uh, in the small little way that I can um, by getting word out there about one person's experience, one family's experience. And additionally, I do share the points of view of many of the people I interviewed in the autism world, uh, especially those who identify as autistic themselves. So I use their verbatim words in the piece. So you get to hear a lot of different people's point of view. Mm. Why a comedy? (laughs) Because if you can't laugh, you got to cry. So I don't. I can't imagine anyone would want to just sit in a drama Mm. for 90 minutes about autism. That sounds kind of dire to me. Um, a comedy is the way to let an experience in. I mean, that's that's my take on comedy in general. That's how I live my life. Uh, if I can laugh about it, if I can make other people laugh about it, if I can entertain them while I'm opening their hearts and minds, hopefully I'm doing a good job. Uh, we don't want to give too much away uh, for our listeners who may have tickets or thinking about it uh, after they hear you uh, speak to us, Annie. Uh, but explain a little bit about how you took this story, your story, um, on stage. Uh, again, it's a solo comedy, so you're writing, performing. Uh, but why A-Train? Well, um, of course, 
it started when I started writing the piece. It was called A Word. A being autism, like the unspoken word. You remember back in the day when people wouldn't say the word cancer or divorce. Um, And now it's more out in the open, thank goodness. But I want to reduce the stigma about autism. And so um, it started with that. And then my son's story greatly involves trains because a lot of people on the autism spectrum have a special interest, and his special interest is trains, particularly subway trains. We grew up in New York. The boys lived there till they were five. By age four, he had the whole subway line memorized. And that has been a huge focus in our lives. So it seemed a natural confluence to move the play from being a word to a train And the whole play takes place within the framework of a subway trip. So we have subway stops along the way. I won't give it away. I won't give away what they're called. But uh, it takes place on a subway platform. And it's the journey from the beginning of a train all the way to the end. Annie Tersilieri is in studio with me here on Where We Live. She's writer and performer of A Train. It opens tonight at the Heartbeat Ensemble in Hartford. Again, it tells uh, her uh, story uh, when she learned one of her sons was diagnosed with autism. And you can learn more about this play on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Annie, you mentioned earlier that you talked with uh, people um, who have some experience with autism. Maybe it's a, a relative or a loved one or they're on the spectrum. So what did they tell you, and how did that inform the message that you wanted to put out there while you're on stage? Well, I talked to people that I knew from the community, so neighbors, um, local professionals, teachers, and then I really I went to autism conferences, and I really wanted to make it a priority to speak with people who identify as autistic themselves because that's the, you know, going to the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, Boy, I learned so much. Uh, It was really hard to get it down into a 90-minute show because when I started, I think the first read-through I did, which was at the Lark Theater in New York City, it was five hours. (laughs) And most of that was just quotes from people because each one was a jewel. You know, and I really wanted to honor the experience of all these people that had trusted me with their stories and and taken the time. So I had all these recordings. I transcribed them, pages and pages and pages, I mean, hours and hours of material. Um, And I sort of whittled it down to a, a few sort of different viewpoints. One of the things that I found early on in the autism community, and I think it is still true today, is that... Uh, There are two very different camps. The one camp in the show I call the neurodiversity camp. That's not a term that I have coined, but that's certainly um, the viewpoint that uh, we have many different kinds of minds and brains and experiences, and I certainly believe that to be true, Um, one of which we is labeled in the medical community neurotypical, and now this new emergence of neurodiversity. So that, among other things, are people on the autism spectrum, a different way of your neurology working. And those people tend to be in the, in the camp of um, really what we need is acceptance and celebration of these differences. And that's a beautiful thing. 
there's another very different take on autism, which in my play I call the Danger Will Robinson camp. <laughs> For those of us who are old enough to remember Lost in Space, um, that might ring a bell. <laughs> These are the people, they tend to be folks who are really experiencing more stress because of their experience with autism, whether it's themselves personally or family members. And they're sort of saying, yes, we need to celebrate. Yes, we need acceptance. But, oh, my gosh, we are drowning here. We need help. We are freaking out. So let's not sugarcoat this as, you know, unicorns pooping rainbows. We got some problems here, and we really need more services. We really need more research. We really need more supports, especially for people who are aging out of the system. Uh, what's going to happen to these kids? The numbers are increasing. And this isn't all, you know, sunshine and teddy bears. This is a problem that we have to deal with. So those two camps uh, really kind of differ. And you'd think there'd be more overlap and cooperation. And I hope that there will be as we move forward. But can I ask, uh, Annie, when you um, discovered uh, that one of your uh, sons uh, was being uh, was diagnosed with autism, what went through your mind? Was it first fear? And then at that time um, of when you got the diagnosis, did you feel like you knew where to turn? Great questions. Well, you really got to come see the show to get the, <laughs> the real answers. But uh, uh, suffice it to say that I was freaked out. I knew nothing about autism except the stereotypes, you know, Rain Man and all that. And uh, I had no idea what the future held for my son. And, of course, none of us know the futures for any of our children or any of ourselves. I mean, that's a little fallacy we like to comfort ourselves with, that we know what's coming up down the pike. But um, in this case, we really didn't know. And I should mention that um, I have twins, so for us, we could see a really big difference between our two boys, um, one of whom is on the spectrum and one of whom is just a piece of work, <laughs> as I like to say. So right off the bat, we could see some big differences. And we were really scared. We were really worried. And we just did not know how to proceed. Uh, things have gotten much better since then, both for our family but in the world of autism. There are a lot more resources now. There's a lot more awareness. Thank goodness a lot more places for um, newly diagnosed families to turn for, for guidance. But this was, um, let's see, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. There was not as much then. And we were freaking out. Yeah. This was a years-long process uh, to put a train uh, on the stage uh, after you thought about it and wrote about it and did the research. Uh, what's been the feedback? What are you hearing? Wow, the feedback, feedback has been so... Um, humbling and encouraging. It has given me the courage to kind of move forward and continue to try to improve the piece, try to rewrite, try to make it better, try to really get it out there to the world because I I hope that it can do some good. I mean, the, the feedback's been, ver been very encouraging, both from people who have no experience with autism and want to learn more and kind of are like, oh, wow, that's what it's like. Wow, okay, that's a, an insight. Now I have a different perspective, as well as and almost more um, powerfully from the families who are living it and saying, wow, yes, this touched on so many points that we've been living through and how great to know that other people are going through it. And thank you for sharing this story.
We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Annie, but could you tell us uh, briefly about how you incorporated music, even art, into this, uh, this play? Yes, well, I should mention that we have an amazing composer, Brad Carroll, an amazing director, Risa Brainin, wonderful designer and production coordinator, Michael Clares. And Brad wrote uh, music for which I had created the lyrics. And um, we also have incorporated artwork from incredible artists, all of whom identify as autistic, in collaboration with a group called The Art of Autism, curated by one of their founders, Kerry Bowers. And the artwork is astounding. And it's another glimpse into the hearts and minds and souls of these people who have a different way of um, experiencing life and sharing their their insights via their art. And um, I hope you'll come see it. Uh, your children are in their teens now. Yes. Um, the son that has been diagnosed with autism, has he seen the play? He has not seen the play. His twin brother saw the play for the first time a few months ago, and he was sort of taken aback by how difficult the journey was um, for us at the beginning. And because I think, and the reason my son on the spectrum has not seen it is because we have never presented autism to him as anything like a problem, per se. I mean, he knows there are challenges, but he also knows that he has autism superpowers, as we call them. He has a lot of gifts, as does everyone. Um, and we never wanted to scare him about it or make him feel stigmatized or make him worried. We wanted we present it in our family very much like some people have brown eyes, some people have blue eyes. Some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed. Some people's brains work this way, some people's brains work this way. And so the story of the play really goes into the fear and the anxiety. Um, of course, it comes out the other side to acceptance, but I think that would be upsetting to him at this point. I think he'll see it when he's older. Um, also, you know, trains are his beloved, beloved uh, modes of expression, and I struggle with trains in the play. Mm. And I think that would be a little horrifying to him. <laughs> Well, this sounds like a, a really wonderful uh, play, again, that's opening tonight at the Heartbeat Ensemble's Carriage House Theater in Hartford. A-Train, opening tonight all the way through March 3rd. Annie Torsilieri, thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf, Seth Blair on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. 